This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Jay Ravel, welcome to The Backdrop, my friend. Thanks for having me, man. I am thrilled to have a conversation with you, talk a little golf, nothing I enjoy more. You do enjoy it, and we love uh, you sharing so much of it with us. I'm just going to dive right in as we get started. Um, your first book coming out here shortly, uh, or it's out. It's out as of today, right? Yeah, yeah, it's out this week, uh, and it's it's going well. Having fun with it. So the nine virtues of golf: essays, musings, and other contemplations on the game. Uh, I I just I. I'm a big fan of, of all your stuff, man. Every time you, you put uh, one of your daily scribes out on the interwebs, I, I love to, uh, to follow along. Why this one uh, for your first book? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, um, some of it is, is opportunity. Uh, a lot of it's passion, obviously. Um, a few years ago, I, I, I got this wild idea to start writing about golf. It wasn't ever really something I had set out to do. I always tell people, you know, I, I, I've always written professionally. I've always done a lot of writing uh, in my life, but for some reason I had never written about probably the thing I love most, which is golf, which in hindsight is kind of odd. Uh, but uh, about three years ago, I started scribing some notes uh, and it started turning into some stories and some essays and some other things eventually to a website. And um, when the, when the pandemic really set in, um, you know, a couple things happen. One, you know, we're all kind of locked in at home. Uh, you have to sort of find some ways to, to break up your day a little bit. And I kept finding myself sort of really having a hard time sleeping. Uh, so I had, I feel like I just had more time on my hands than I, I ever had before. Um, you know, it's very busy with my day job, but, uh, but also having just a lot of other, other hours at hand and, um, I had had this idea of, of eventually sort of doing a, a greatest hits album, uh, going back through everything that I had written and putting them together into a, a book of sorts, but never really had the time to do it. And all of a sudden I had the time. So I also felt like, um, you know, it was kind of a weird few months for the golf community. A lot of people were without golf. Uh, a lot of people just now really kind of getting back into it as the season ramps up uh, for a lot of the country. But uh, I said, you know, the, the timing here is kind of good on a lot of fronts. I think people need some, uh, maybe a refreshing way to to get out of uh, the stresses of the world right now and just think about golf. But also, uh, you know, there's some some sort of hidden messages in there about how golf can be something that's good for, uh, you know, how we can heal our country, how we can become closer to those that uh, are our neighbors. And um, to me, it just all kind of lined up perfectly. And I really started working on pulling it together in about March and here we are in June and it's, it's on the shelf, so to speak. I think what the title grabbed my attention because for that very reason, I think the timing of, of uh, what's going on in the world. And, and then I looked at what your, your virtues were and, and I got to say from a new club golf society perspective, you know, we're very uh, proud of our core values and many of your virtues are shared core values that, that we want all of our members to have. Um, you know, for you as, as uh, golfers, we like, to, we like to rank things. Is there a virtue for you that just like was number one that, that you said you put it right to paper? You go, okay, this is going to be one of those chapters. You know, it's funny. The, the whole concept for that uh, piece that I did, it, it goes back to my grandmother. Um, when I was a kid, my, my grandmother was very, she's always been just, you know, still around, but very involved in my life and in particular my golf life. Uh, she took me to a lot of tournaments, you know, came and watched all my high school matches. I mean, she was kind of my, my number one fan. And I remember being, you know, just a little guy and she used to read these stories about, uh, she, it was a book, it was the book of virtues, I think was the name of this sort of children's book. I remember her reading these things to me. And she used to translate those even then into uh, into golf discussions. You know, she just um, was just always. We lived in a kind of a golf crazy family, and um, she just spent a lot of time talking about those things and and talking about you know even people like Bobby Jones and uh, and, and and sort of what it, what it means to be in a, a gentleman's game and 
I kind of look at the whole piece as a sort of a, an outline for the golfer uh, that I, I wish I was, you know, th- those, those virtues are, are not always easy to live up to, uh, but they are very important. Uh, and they're, they're certainly aspirational uh, in a lot of ways, but um, you know, so every time I, w- I sat down and, and thought about that um, you know, piece, um, I thought about her and the one that, that I, you know, the thing I can, I can hear her in my head saying this as we speak, you know, patience is a virtue. She just always told me patience, patience, patience. And of all the things in my life and of all those, those virtues that I try to, um, you know, remind myself of the most patience is probably the one that, that stands out. So when I started writing it, that was kind of one of some, okay, got it, got to have that in there. I grant, you know, she would not, uh, not approve otherwise. So, uh, patience is just, so important in every everything about our lives you know that if you can if you can sit back and be willing to listen and be able to wait for the opportunity to present itself uh you usually can come out all right and i've found you know in golf you know if you're someone like me who uh you know doesn't exactly you know, not exactly a bomber kind of got my my little low cut shot that i hit you kind of have to be patient for the scoring opportunity you kind of got to you know, stick with it just uh wait for the right moment to strike so uh, that's always been one that, that really stood out for me. Was, was that grandma, uh, married to Gramps because of all your essays, oh, yeah. <laughs> year, uh, the, of all your essays, the one that I really, um, really enjoy, I mean, I enjoyed, I enjoy all of them, Jay, but I really enjoyed this one about your grandfather. Uh, so did he, he make a chapter? Is he in this one? His, you know, the story I wrote about him that came out uh, on golf.com earlier this year, um, I'm, I'm, I've kind of got that plan for maybe a future, a future endeavor, but um, he certainly has a presence. He's really in every page um, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, he, he really taught me the game and has just been a massive influence in my life. But there's a, um, there's a story in there called How I Got Hooked on Golf about uh, place that I grew up, which was Havana Golf and Country Club, where he was the longtime club pro out there, sort of the jack of all trades, our little nine hole course. And, you know, the opening line in that piece is, if golf is a drug, then I was raised in an opium den. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how it was, you know, and that was that was Gramps uh, world over there. And I talk a lot about him and just the, the, the time we spent out there together. And yeah, again, I you don't realize sometimes when you're, when you're in it and you're growing up, how much something is influencing you. But, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, I look back on the everyday experiences I had hanging out up there in the pro shop and talking with these members and, and being around people. But it, it influenced me in just about every way, some good, some bad, but, um, you know, I learned how to play poker and cuss at a pretty early age, but you know, that's, that's part of the fun, I guess. Um, but yeah, he, he really is. And he's in every page and that is, he's married to, you know, my grandmother and they've been together for 60 something years now. And, uh, their, their son, my uncle, uh, Ben Bates, his name, um, uh, was sort of synonymous with the mini tours for a long time. Spent a few years on the big tour. And when I was uh, sort of in those adolescent years, we spent every summer really going around traveling, watching him and, spending time uh, with a lot of my PGA tour heroes and getting to know them. And so just, you know, the, the two of them together really uh, set the hooks in pretty deep with me when it comes to golf. We ask a, a question in our, our member application around um, your golfing role model. And the number mm-hmm. one answer is uh, either a father or grandfather most of the time. Mm-hmm. And when I read, when I read your piece on, on your gramps uh, you know, I thought about golfing role models and, and kind of the heroes of the game, who we want to be, you know, when you're growing up as a kid, you're trying to be tiger, you're trying to be Jack, or you're trying to be everyone you're seeing on TV. Now that, you know, majority of our members are kind of mid thirties after their playing careers for the most part. Uh, they're really looking to older generations for, you know, your, your gramps, I think is what 85 plays every day. Shoots yeah, 86 his now. Yeah. Wow. And, yeah, and, he goes four days a week. What's today? Thursday. So it's uh, he'll be teeing off in about two hours, doing his thing. Yeah, going after it. But yeah, he's he's hardcore. Um, yeah, I, I wrote about that same piece. You know, my heroes growing up weren't as much. You know, the the Tiger and David Duvall and all those guys. I mean, they they were, but I they I've more looked up to the guys that are a little club. You know, there's 
talked about you know guys like uh, there's a, a guy out there named David Touchton who called him Mister Smooth. I mean, left-handed when he when he made a turn of the ball, it sounded like a candle being blown out. Man, it just was the smoothest thing. Um, and you just sit there, man. That's who you wanted to kind of emulate. You know, you watch how they play. You watch these, these scrappy little country golfers out here in blue jeans getting up and down from everywhere. And I mean, they were just these incredible characters. Um, and, and they all kind of looked after me, you know, I kind of feel like I kind of got raised by this, um, you know, group of, of cats out there that were just obsessed with golf. And it, and it certainly shows in my personality, but, um, yeah, you know, that, that when you really think about it, those are, those were, those are the real, uh, heroes that, that, that spread the game of golf. I mean, because, as much as you know, again, our superstars in the game are very important. Uh, the people who are who are actually sort of on the ground teaching people the game and showing them the traditions and showing them, you know, uh, how to play, how to score, how to be around each other. They're, they're really the uh, the backbone of, of how we grow the game. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. The the uh, a lot in a lot of your writings. One thing I do in, enjoy is that you know it's it's your personal experiences with the game, but you also uh, advocate for a lot of things that you do believe in that you think golf, you know, needs to do, to do more of, um, there, there's many to pick from, but what's something that, you know, for, for you or, or maybe your book with something that's in there, that's going to kind of, uh, advocate for something that needs to kind of just come out of the game. It's already there, but maybe we just need yeah. more of it. I, there's a piece in there called, um, a strategic plan for American golf. And so, you know, when you, when you look at the book, I mean, it's kind of got a, a mix of different uh, takes and stories in there. Some of them are, are more traditional essays. There's even some, uh, uh, some poetry in there, you know, the, the golfing poet in my soul has to come out every now and then. And then there's some pieces that are, are a little uh, Jerry Maguire-ish, right? They're, they're sort of these uh, manifestos on, uh, on what I think the game should be like. And, you know, I, I, in that piece of strategic plan for American golf, I talk about, you know, that, that golf's got a lot of good things in it. Um, and if we can pivot to our strengths and make sure that we're always putting the best foot forward uh, for golf, th that's really how you grow the game. You know, if you showcase, uh, uh, I always like the way I think Andy Johnson framed this one time. He was talking about, you know, if you're going to try to get someone to start liking coffee, you know, would you take them and give them a, a, a you know two dollar gas station cup of coffee, or would you give them a pretty good cup of coffee from a local, uh, locally sourced shop that's you know had some attention put into it, right? And I I think that's got a lot of wisdom. And so, you know, when I think about how you grow the game, and and, and uh, you know, not to use that you know beleaguered phrase too much, but I think you just have to be able to put golf in a position to succeed, which means taking its strengths and putting those you know forward every single day i talk about things like you know and there's a lot of these are trends that are already happening but you know in my mind you know kids under 15 should be able to play for free everywhere everywhere you just should be you know kids should play for free everywhere, especially in, in environments like like country clubs um uh, but even at, at the at the municipal level and and on daily fee places and i use the the, the time of 15 because that's when i really started working uh, full time at my local golf course on the maintenance staff. Once you get to 15, 16, you ought to go work at the golf course. And if you're working there, you should play for free too. But under 15, you, know, you really want to get the game fired up. You want to get people addicted to the game at an early age. Let them, let that be the playground. Um, you know, right now I was on a, a call earlier. Uh, it was, uh, had a lot of economic insights, right? Talking about what people are going to be doing. And, and this whole you know pandemic is sort of, quietly i think actually been good for golf i mean i, I can speak to uh, our local club we we had the best spring we've ever had ever had down here uh people were looking to get outdoors again people are looking to reconnect with nature and you know i think you're going to see a lot of parents who want to see make see their kids get off the screens more and get out in the world again and you know golf's just the perfect opportunity for that i mean i was practically raised on a golf course my my, you know, I told my parents that, you know, from the moment I was up during the summer till, you know, till the dinner bell rang, I was on the golf course. That's just what we did. Me and my brother and my, our neighbors. And, you know, that's how we spent our days. You know, we might take a pool break or a Snickers break or whatever every now and then, but it was all golf all the time. And, and, and we never paid a cent for it. 
Uh, that was part of our, uh, the way our club operated. And um, I think that is, is just a huge component. And I, I talk about, you know, golf in small doses. Uh, you're seeing a lot of that sort of shrinking of the game happening today, which I think is a very positive trend. But you also ought to be able to have golf, um, you know, in, in little community putting greens, um, you know, in urban areas, you know. Um, I mean, imagine, you know, how, how, you know, I think about like in New York city where you have sort of the little sort of shrunken down, um, uh, soccer pitches, uh, you know, sort of in mid block areas with the, you know, chain link fence around them and stuff, right. Or a little basketball courts. And well, why can't you have a putting green, you know, on a little half block in Manhattan? Why can't you, or, or Topeka, Kansas or wherever, you know, uh, you are. Um, I think there are massive opportunities particularly in urban areas to do things like that. And, uh, you know, you're seeing some good trends. I, I was looking the other day, you had, uh, uh, Davis love and his design groups got that, uh, old Tillinghast course. I think it's up in Richmond, uh, that they're, they're shrinking down to, you know, 12 holes. They're going to restore 12 holes. They're going to take, uh, the rest of the area and make a little six hole short course. I mean, that, those are the environments that are really going to, to get people hooked on golf. I mean, and if you can implement some things like uh, letting kids, you know, do it. And yeah, I also think as I was looking at the book the other day, I, you know, timeliness is important. I, I, I there's some things maybe had I gone back and revised it, uh, I, I might include a few more specific rate, uh, you know, racial disparity pieces in there. Um, but, but it, but it speaks to everybody, you know, I mean, you want to, you want to diversify the game, start with the kids start with the kids. I just think that's the the place where, and do it and do it again. Let's see the conversation I was on. I think it was Shackelford was talking with somebody about this on his podcast the other day. But he said, you know, don't, don't do it in platitudes. Do it. If you make the game fun and make it accessible for kids, a lot of those problems really will take care of themselves. And, um, and I think that's the key, make it attractive, make it fun, make it accessible, make it affordable. And that's, that's really the key to it. You know, that's that's true. I mean, this to topics like this and to conversations like this need to be happening right now uh, more more than ever. That's why I just love that this book is, you know, dropping when it does. Uh, one small anecdote from one of our courses we work with that I I think is a sign of, you know, maybe some of these virtues and uh, elements of the game that need to to come back. We had a golf club that always charged uh, the same rate for walking and riding course all carts. And I know you are a huge advocate for carrying the bag, pushing the cart, walking, getting some exercise. Um, so this course, they actually, uh, when COVID hit, you couldn't take carts. Everyone had to walk and they started to see, you know, maintenance, uh, practices become a little bit easier for their team. They started to see pace of play that actually improved quite a bit. And talking to this general manager, he said, people, are just more relaxed than they were in carts. And so he went to his management and said, hey, I, I actually think we need to get people walking more often. My job's become easier. Our super's job becomes easier. I, I can, can we, you know, what can we do? So they, they, they said, okay, we'll charge 30 bucks for a cart. And what's happened, even though we're now back to, you know, more normalized um, restrictions, people are walking. People got a taste of it. And they realized, wow, um, and it's a nine hole course, by the way. So it's not like you're going to be, you know, too gassed after the end of it. Mm -hmm. But I, I bring that up because that's one of the things that you advocate for walking. And it's been so hard. I, I advocate for it. New club advocates for it. And it's been so hard to, to, to get people to, to understand what, why are we saying that? What are the benefits to this? And then something so drastic happened. And now people are realizing it. Um, what other, are there some other things right now you've noticed that like these times are, they're changing? Yeah, I, you know the walking trend. I think is is definitely uh, you know, here to stay. I, I mean, you know, good luck getting a push cart anywhere right now online, right? I mean, the whole country sold out of them. It's pretty incredible. And um, you know, car, I, I I try not to demonize the golf cart so much. I I, I sound you know a little uh, maybe a little preachy when I do that. I've, I've tried to come off that, but I will say it is such an infinitely better experience when you're on foot. And, and I, I mean, I, I used to be that guy. I mean, nothing wrong with it. It's just, it's a different variety of golf. But you know, when I was, you know, I grew up in the game. All I ever did was walk. I went off to college. I didn't play so much and golf kind of became a, you know, an outlet for really just drinking beer and hanging out with friends. And that's fine. I got no, no objection to that. Do plenty of that. But 
when I, when I started walking again, it was like the whole world of the game opened back up. I mean, you just see things, you hear things, your game gets improved. I mean, the distraction of not having to basically drive an automated, you know, vehicle around a golf course and fidgeting around with all this stuff. And, you know, you're on your phone more, you just, you're just disconnected from the experience. Um, and again, it, 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 for some people, that's the game they want to play. A lot of courses obviously were built to where you kind of have to have one. Um, and it's just, it's just not as enjoyable. Um, but there, there are other trends too. I mean, uh, I, I think you're going to see this grand revelation that, uh, which some people have talked about, you know, from a minimalist perspective, right? You just, you just don't need a lot of the bells and whistles that a lot of golf courses have spent millions of dollars trying to put in place. Um, I, you know, my, my club here in Tallahassee, our clubhouse built in 1958. It looks like a dilapidated elementary school. I mean, it's like a nuclear bunker. I mean, it's just from a different time, right? I mean, we have these ballrooms just sitting empty and stuff. I mean, I wish we could just, you know, drop a bomb on the place. Um, What's the name I, of your told, club again? Uh, Capital City Country Club. It's Capital a, City. It's a, yeah, it, it's an interesting place, man. A lot of history. And, you know, one thing that I'm very proud of, I was the president. I was, everybody, I was the, I'm a recovering country club president. Uh, somehow I managed to become that when I was 30 years old. I remember this guy that was on the board formally came up to me because, yeah, yeah, because I, I was actually the president uh, back in the 80s when I was 30 years old. He goes, the worst year of my damn life. He said, good luck. And I was like, oh, great. But, you know, we, we did some things when I was out there and we continue to do where we, we, we went from being, you know, some of it by necessity, but, but sometimes that's how good things happen. Um, you know, we open it up to the public, uh, and, and the numbers have improved dramatically. I mean, it's the, the, the days of, I think just some of these stuffy old rules and, um, trying to shut the world off from your golf experience. I, I just, I'm just not sure that selling that is going to be very successful, uh, for the long term. Uh, you know, our generation, certainly the generation right after us, uh, exclusivity is just not really the selling point that's it's working um and i think golf uh there, there's a bit of a reckoning coming on that and probably a needed one but you know you, you just don't need it all you know i mean one of the most eye-opening experiences i ever had and it really triggered my whole just rethinking of the game and starting to write about it was the first time i ever went to sweetens cove and i mean i probably one of a million that have had this experience now it seems like but the first thing I ever wrote about golf was I went up to Sweetens Cove about three and a half years ago. And I remember sitting in my, in a meeting Monday morning back in my office and I could not stop thinking about what I had just experienced. And it was all the elements of it, right? Especially the fact that, you know, you had this shed sitting there, right? And it just in a porta potty, right? It's just the most down to earth thing. I remember there was a guy working there that day. Um, I'm blanking on his name. I have to go back and look what it, 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 it I, I'm not sure if he's still out there or not, but he's sitting there in the, in the little folding chair on the porch. Um, and he was just kind of working the shop. I think at the time it wasn't Patrick or any of those guys, but, um, I was like, man, it feels like there's like a mall cop guarding the Mona Lisa right now out here. It's the damnest thing I've ever seen. And I just loved everything about that. Uh, and you just don't need all that stuff. You just don't need all these bells and whistles. You need a place to park your car. You need a place to, uh, you know, use the restroom. You know, if you can get a, a beer or a, a hot dog, that's kind of nice. But, you know, you just don't need that much. You need good friends. You need a good golf course, a place that you can walk and enjoy, and hopefully some decent weather. That's a pretty good recipe. And I think the more we can get that kind of golf uh, forward-facing for the world, the, the better we're all going to be. So it is amazing how many of our conversations have included the name Sweetens Cove um, and the connections that it's, it's created between, you know, our, our members and friends and supporters, ambassadors. It's, um, it, you know, I think, I hope history is going to kind of look back at, at a point and see what they did down there um, and realize it was such a, uh, kind of the tinder fire right where things almost got started to a degree and and it's cool that was that i that was one question i had for you what was your first essay on golf it was sweet and skull yeah i wrote this i wrote this piece um 
called the song of Sweden's Cove. Uh, I think you can probably still find it on the sugar love social club website. Uh, I I was up in DC in uh, early 2017 and I met up with Ian Gilly from sugar love for a cocktail uh, at a hotel. Again, never had met him, but been following what they were doing. And I, I sat down, I remember having the conversation and I just said, you know, I love what you guys are doing. There's, there is a movement afoot in golf. I can sense that the ground is starting to really move. And I feel like I could have a voice in that. I just don't have any idea what I'm doing. I don't know what really where to go. We just kind of talked through some ideas and, and probably, um, I don't know, six or eight months later, I went up, I was, uh, I was up near Chattanooga. It's very good friends up there. I was there for a wedding and I had about a four hour window in the morning. I looked at one of my, couple of my guys, we're going on a little trip. I said, uh, we're going to be gone. We're going to be just back in time for the wedding. I said, but we're going to go up here and see this place. And so we drive up there. We actually were in his little RV of all things. It's kind of funny. And we pull in and it's just like this revelation. Like what in the world? I mean, you're driving through like the the setting of deliverance. You know, you're driving around this little, you know, just South Pittsburgh, man, doing its thing. And you come around the corner and there's just this amazing golf course. And, it, and the whole setup just, kind of blew my mind and and what I wrote about was was you know I started the pieces like you know I'm I'm sitting in a meeting room in Tallahassee Florida but my my soul was somewhere in South Pittsburgh Tennessee you know and and I couldn't stop thinking about it I mean it, it was just one of those things that just really stayed with me and all I could do was help but to you know put some words together about it and just kind of describe the experience and I sent it to Ian and I was like, Hey, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. What do you, what should I do? He goes, well, you know, why don't we just put it up on our site and see what happens. And it got tons of hits. And I was like, Whoa, this is kind of crazy. And it's also a little addicting. Um, so I put that up and then as, as fortune would have it, I don't know, about a month or two later, I was going out in California, went and played Ponce Tiempo, fell in love with that place. Uh, I wrote a piece there called the ashes of Alistair McKenzie and, and, uh, a lot of people don't know his ashes were spread out there and there's this little bench just off the back of the 16th green where you can kind of sit there and reflect, you know, with this majestic, you know, golf hole and think about him. And so I wrote about that and put it up there, got a lot of other good hits. And so you just start kind of toying around with some things. And, and, and over the last couple of years, I started to sort of find my voice. And as you can tell, you know, if you read the book there, I've tried a lot of different things. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be exploratory in what I write about. And, um, I tell everybody that there's a lot of very talented people in our game right now who write just incredible stuff. And there's a lot to admire. Um, you know, whether again, if you're in the architecture, you think about what Andy does and, um, you know, just, there's just tons of people that are doing, doing really great stuff. I love what the no laying up guys do. I mean, just, 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 just Eric Lang stuff's good. I mean, there's just tons of stuff, tons of really great stuff and that's good for golf. And so for me to differentiate, I, I, I go back to some advice I got from a friend of mine once I was, um, there was this girl back in college. I've talked quiet. So my wife doesn't hear this too loudly, but I was just in love with her. I thought she was just the most wonderful, wonderful gal. And, you know, like, like sometimes you have a hard time getting a date. And, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine and he said, man, all you can do is be the best version of Jay Revel you can. If she's into it, great. If not, you know, just, you know, keep going. And so when I think about what I write, I, I try to write Jay Revel stories. I, I try to make them unique and different and, and something that, uh, maybe, maybe you're not going to find anywhere else. And, um, I have, I have built a following. It's not a, uh, not a massive one, but, uh, it's one that I think kind of has little, little people that pop in with me from all around the globe that, that tend to go for it. And, uh, right now it, it seems to be working. I, I, I keep looking at it again, talking about being addicting. My, the book right now is the number one new release in golf on Amazon, uh, which just, you know, I, I, I told my wife, I had the lowest expectations you can imagine for this thing. Uh, self-published don't really know, you know, learning a lot, but didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, but I think it turned out pretty well and, and people keep responding well to it. And uh, like I said, all I can credit that to is just trying to do my version of it, you know? So. Well, it's, it's ended. We got a book club as part of Argos society. So it's landed on the list, my man, it's going to be one nice. of the upcomers. Um, there's a theme 
that I see in a lot of your essays too about community. Uh, something you know, I'm probably most passionate about about uh, well, the game of golf probably second, and then kind of building and growing community and being a part of something with others. Um, there's there's a word too that you've used from time to time, uh, placemaking, mm-hmm. and I'm curious what what does placemaking mean to you? So. <clears throat> Dive into my background for a hot minute. Um, professionally, uh, I, I have always been very interested in cities, how they grow, uh, how they thrive, and, and, and sort of how they prosper and, and, and how cities can work best. So um, I used to have a wonderful job. Uh, I was the uh, CEO of an organization here in Tallahassee called the Downtown Improvement Authority. And essentially what we did was placemaking. We used to say that uh, our work was to make downtown work better. And what that meant was creating community, little gathering places, um, you know, things like uh, putting in new, uh, we, we did these really cool front porch swing seats around our downtown. Uh, took an abandoned building on a prominent corner and painted a big, you know, postcard mural uh, that, you know, went from being this ice, I used to talk about turning eyesores into assets, uh, take a place that was abandoned and turn it into the place where, you know, the college kids get their picture taken with their cap and gowns on. Um, we built this thing. I used to call it downtown beach. We took a vacant lot and put volleyball courts on it, uh, sand volleyball courts on it. People eat it up, you know, um, little things like that. I, I, you remember that commercial used to run, I don't know, back in like the nineties, early two thousands, it was a, it was for BASF and say, we don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. Um, that, that was, that's always kind of been how my mind works. So like I, I, I have the ability for whatever reason, you know, to, I can see a physical space and I see this with golf courses a lot. Um, you know, I, I offer up unsolicited opinions pretty regularly, but, uh, I can see a place and sort of, know how to rearrange the furniture to make it more communal. Um, I, I think a lot of people, um, you, you can tell places where the details matter. Uh, I was listening to uh, Matt Janela's podcast and Mike Kaiser and a bunch of people on talking about sort of the history of abandoned dunes. And one of the things that a Mike Kaiser gets is that the details matter tremendously. And what a lot of places miss on is, is the details. Um, I, I did this, I did a Ted talk once and I'm, I'm still convinced that it would have been a, uh, a massive hit except for one problem. I got up on stage and just absolutely murdered this thing. I mean, it was like, I put you know, months of preparation into it. It just, I love public speaking. I, I mean, I just totally nailed it. The crowd was into it. Everybody loved it. I get off stage, pumped up like, man, that is going to be a YouTube hit right there. And the guy comes up to me and goes, I got terrible news the sound didn't work and I'm just devastated. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And I, he's like, can you do it again? I was like, no, I can't do it again. I was like, I can't go to the audience and do that again. Do you, so, you know what that took to, for me to get there? <laughs> I was like, you've got to be kidding me, man. So, so the, 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 you know, the, that version of a YouTube star never happened, but the, the talk that I gave was called the power of place. And I talked about things like, uh, like Disney world, for example, you know, you, I use this line and said, you know, you go to Disney world, First thing they do is they take your car away from you. They cram you into mass transit. They ship you across the swamp. Uh, it's overcrowded. The kids are crying. It's 100 degrees. The ice cream is melting. You're wearing a fanny pack. And you know how they sell it to you? The happiest place on earth. And the only reason that they can get away with that is because no detail is overlooked. You're never going to catch Mickey with his head off smoking a cigarette around the corner. You know, I mean, it's it's nothing is out of place and it's a sensory overload. Right. And so what I used to, the approach I used to take to sort of forming downtowns is if you, if you think about it like you would a Disney world or any kind of place that's, you know, really trying to nail the details from an experiential standpoint, you have to just really pay attention to the small things. And if you get the small things right, it opens up opportunities for bigger things to happen and it allows community to start to happen because you create a place where people want to be, there's a lot of magic in that. And so golf um, is very similar in my mind. You know, I, I, I just got back from three days at Streamsong, taking our annual guys trip, talking about community, right? We've got 
this great culture of young guys out at Capital City that love to, you know, everybody's eating up with the game. We love to travel. We love to go to different places together. And uh, we've just got a, a tremendous, you know, friendship and, and a group of companions. But you go to a place like that and, you know, they nail a lot of details. You know, there's just like, okay, we, we, so the only course open there right now is black. So we were able to, to work out a deal, save you the long story. But, um, when you're out on that golf course, it has these, it just has this incredible sense of place to it. Right. I mean, the windmill is there. You're kind of always inside of it. Uh, you'll be down in a valley in one place and you look up and your friends are up on the, the next hill teeing off, or then you get up there on the hill and you're looking down in the next valley, you see the other set of your friends. And there's just this, this real sense of this place matters. And the details were, um, incredibly important to everyone that put it together. And, when, when I think about golf course architecture and I think about the whole experience, those are the things that, that once you start to peel those layers of the onion, you start to really look for that. And to the point about walking versus riding, you don't see those things when you're riding. You just don't, you don't get to that level of detail, but like, you know, a place like Streamsong, you know, I, I think about these moments that happen within the round of golf. Like I, one of the best ones is uh, on, on the red course for those who have ever been. Uh, you play this great sixth hole on red par three kind of tucked into the dunescape. And when you come off the green, if you're in a cart, you're going around this dirt path and you miss one of the great moments, which is walking up this staircase of railroad ties through a sand dune. And you come up and you see that majestic seventh hole, which is just one of the masterpieces on the golf course. And, and to think that someone put that level of detail of thought, into how you would go through that flow of experience. That 15 minutes of your round right there is going to hook you forever and keep you coming back. And so when I talk about placemaking, that is, that's what that is. That's, that's placemaking in, in every way, shape, or form. And so, you know, I, I get, I, I don't know, it's like a mental disorder of some kind, but I, I go to different places and all I can see is what thing, the way things should be. Uh, I think about a golf course, um, and, uh, and I see a place where, you know, um, things just, you can just tell when people kind of give a damn, uh, you can tell when thought was put into these details and when they're not, the experience really lacks. Um, and, um, you know, you go back to, again, what we were talking about, you know, Sweden's Cove, what's so cool about what those guys get right is even though they were maybe constrained budget wise, you know, they got the experience, they nailed the experience on the golf course at the beginning. And now you see that they've got some capitalization behind them. They're, na they're bringing that same attention to detail to everything else, but still doing it on that minimal scale, which is really cool. Um, and so I, I think that's one of the things that a lot of golf courses could write. And as we're sitting here, I'm sitting here going, I probably need to write this story actually now that I'm talking about it, but you know, golf courses and clubs and resorts and all these places is if you can create that compelling experience, at sensory overload, I mean, you can really package and sell the hell out of it, but, but you got, it's gotta be good and you gotta pay a lot of attention to detail. There's a, another powerful place that I wanted to ask you about, um, that I've had some personal, uh, incredible experiences, the, the same compelling moments you're talking about. It's uh, tobacco road mm. outside the Pinehurst area. And you did that, that project for uh, our buddies at the golfers journal uh, and you know what it was, I give you a lot of credit, man, because I, I've been right. I was, I was reading your stuff for a while when that came out. I think I was in what? Number 10. Yeah. It was in number 10. Uh, all of our members go check this, this, uh, this piece that Jay did on tobacco road out. It's, uh, it was different than all your other work. It was, you let the people of that place tell that story in their words and you had to compile it in a way that it was like reading an essay. And I just, I just got such a kick out of that because it was so different. Um, tell us a little bit about that project. I know that took sure. up a lot of time, I got to imagine. But uh, tell us about that place and that project. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm, I'm pretty proud of. And I, I give Travis Hill a lot of credit. Um, he had the idea to do the, um, uh, the oral history. And it was funny, I, I got this call, you know, I got a call from him one day, you know, I had been bugging him, you know, sending him all kinds of different essays and ideas for six or eight months. And 
um, one day uh, I got a call from him and he said, Hey, if you're up for it, I've got an assignment for you, which I was like, wow, that's, now we're talking, you know, and, and, and I'll take, you know, I'll back up one step. When I first started writing one of my ambitions, I said, if I could ever write something good enough to go in that publication, I would feel like I had figured it out. Um, and so that, that call meant a lot to me. Um, yeah, I, I've always liked the expression, I'd rather be lucky than good, but damn faint bad being both. And I kind of had this sort of just perfect alignment of scenarios happen. Uh, when I was the country club president, uh, we had a guy that was a member, uh, former tour player, uh, Forrest Bezler. And Forrest, uh, you know, lived the rest of, lived the final years of his life here in Tallahassee and had always had connections here in Tallahassee. Played a lot of golf and, uh, you know, everybody kind of knew who he was. They knew the, he wore shorts on the last hole of the U.S. Open in 83, and he kind of was this sort of funny character. Um, so I was out, I saw him one day, and I was kind of just shooting the breeze with him, and I said, uh, let, let's get some lunch. I want to talk to you about some bunkers. I said, you know, I know you're still doing doing work, um, and just love to just kind of pick your brain. You know, we got some bunkers that really were in, in shape, uh, in, in poor shape and needed to be redone, and so we had lunch one day and I did not know Forrest's story as far as his involvement with, uh, Mike Strands. I just, it just, I just didn't know it. And he starts talking about him and, and telling me these things. And, uh, you know, what was originally supposed to be a one hour lunch turned into this three hour conversation. And I'm just sitting there the whole time. I'm like, Oh my gosh, this story is just remarkable. And I'm like, I, I gotta, I gotta talk to him more. I gotta, I gotta put this down. And so, I actually wrote this, you know, again, you go back and you're, sometimes you read stuff you wrote two years ago and you're like, Ooh, I wish I'd done that a little different. But, um, I wrote this like 9,000 word, you know, sort of like Wright Thompson esque, you know, wannabe, uh, long form piece about the two of them. Um, and kind of framed it up, you know, with this sort of cowboy motif. And, um, I put it out on, on medium and started tweeting it out and it got, it, still gets a lot of hits. Um, and that's how Travis, he, he, they, somewhere in a conversation, Strance came up, uh, well, I'd say Forrest, when, when Forrest passed away, cause I published the P I remember I published that piece in the day that I sent him the final draft. Uh, he told me that he had just found out earlier that morning that he had brain cancer. Poor guy. It was, it was terrible. He went, he went, he was gone in six months. Uh, and the day that he died, I actually kind of broke the news cause his, uh, wife had texted me and told me that he was gone and put it out on Twitter. And then the, you know, sort of golf world started, you know, I got a lot of random messages from some reporters and stuff wanting to confirm it and told them kind of how I knew it. And so anyway, the story which had been out at that point for about six months had another life because it started generating some traffic again. And I think that's when Travis saw it, Travis makes a call. And so, I was a little intimidated at first. I'm like, okay, oral history. That's interesting. I'm not, I've never done one of those, but, uh, I like one of the things that's great about Travis. He's a tremendous editor. Uh, he will put you in a place where, uh, you might go a little outside your comfort zone, but, but he knows how he knows that you can be successful there. He's got a really good uh, eye and talent for that. I think. And, you know, when you read the stories in that, in that book, every quarter, uh, I think there's a lot of that that exists for, for different writers. So he, he's a lot of credit to him, but, um, you know, I went up there, I started, I probably spent, uh, three or four months trying to scope out some, you know, relationships and, uh, get an understanding of maybe who the, the real players were. Uh, you know, you make a list of folks and, uh, uh, you know, the real linchpin for that one was, uh, was Mark Stewart, uh, you know, the, the owner of, of Tobacco Road, co-owner of Tobacco Road. And, built a relationship with him sort of online and then, and then got up there and I just went and embedded for about four days in the Pinehurst area. Uh, I did some of those interviews, you know, on the golf course at tobacco road playing. I did some, uh, um, uh, on other courses playing, uh, did it. And, and we got everybody together. We had uh, sort of a reunion of sorts where, uh, Mark and Tony and uh, Morgan and all the guys that were on, on Mike's original shaping crew were together. And we just had this sort of two and a half hour discussion about Mike and the whole story. I, you know, we recorded it all and went back and transcribed. And then the fun part was, okay, I had about eight hours of conversations, peeling back through, looking for the highlights 
and then finding a way to sort of, you know, piece it together where it really flows like a story. Uh, and it worked out pretty cool. I was, I was really proud of the way it turned out and, uh, great photography, Ryan Barnett, if you don't follow him, he's very talented. Uh, I went, I remember going out there that morning with Ryan and I, again, I kind of do some very, you know, novice amateur photography, right. You know, I, I take a lot of pride, pride in my iPhone shots, but, uh, I just kind of took him around and said, Hey, I've been here for three days. I got about 50 shots. I think will be really cool. And I, and you, and with your eye, you'll, I think you'll, you'll pick up on it. Me and him spent some time that morning, uh, doing some things and it just turned out really cool. I, I, I probably the highlight of my uh, writing career so far and you know, I've just, I've gotten a lot of really good feedback on it. So appreciate that, uh, that you enjoyed it as well. I, I think a place like tobacco road ties in so many of the things that you've already talked about, you know, that, that place making the community. Um, and a lot of that Sweden's Cove aspect of, you know, not being afraid to be different. And they were doing it at a time when <laughs> being different was, yeah, nobody you know, was, nobody was. And, uh, and, and that, you know, for me, and, and I've talked about that place has come up on the podcast a couple of times. Actually um, we just had a really special day there this, this past fall. And it's it, one of our members is talking about it on our upcoming podcast. But, you know, I, I as a young, when I was younger, I was afraid to, to let that place in almost because it was so different because of the standards I was told in the game of golf, this didn't meet any of them. And I needed to discard this place as an anomaly, but something about it made me feel, um, compelled to go back. I was feeling something there and, and, uh, we need more places like that. And that's why I just loved, you know, to understand that place, the way that you went about the research project and how it came to be, that that connects us so much more uh, on top of just just our experience. Yeah, and what Strance did so well, right? I mean, to really understand him, you have to understand that he was an artist first, and I, and I don't just say that you know in a a figurative way. I mean, he was a a trained artist. Uh, fine arts, you know, was where he started his uh, uh, academic pursuits, uh, and. Once you understand kind of how uh, how how artists are training you, but I, I go back you know, when I was a kid, I took a lot of art lessons. I used to love to paint and all that stuff. I hadn't done it in years, but I remember things like you know, you you when you're painting, you know, you fill the entire canvas with detail, right? I mean, you don't you don't you can't ignore a corner uh, and hope that people don't look at it. You know, they're going to look at it. In fact, if you, when you ignore it, they look at it more. Um, and what Strantz would do on a piece of property is uh and, and mark stewart just beautifully illustrated this i remember when we were it was one of the best interviews just walking around playing around golf with him and him recalling those conversations you can drop yourself at any point on that golf course anywhere out there on the whole property and mark talked about it he, you know he said mike used to talk about 360 degrees of design wherever you're standing and wherever you look you're not going to find any part of that canvas that was ignored everywhere on it detail is just exceptional and so you know a lot of next time you're on you know random joe blow golf course somewhere right walk down a walk down a hole turn around and look the other way no one ties things in the other way i mean just that's just not it's just not done because you only look at it one way well mike tied everything in from every angle you can't look at a go- any of those holes from any angle and not see the tie-in he blurred those lines between, you know, the man-made and the natural. And, and uh, you know, especially, you know, 20 years later, you can't tell the difference. I mean, you know what that, that work was done, but you can't really decipher, well, what was there and what wasn't. And that's really the, the beauty of his craft. Um, uh, I mean, he was, he was a, uh, his wife told me, you know, he was an audiophile. I mean, he loved jazz, a big jazz fan. So, I mean, that's kind of what he was. He's kind of this jazz musician meets a, a formally trained artist, you know, on a, on a dozier. Right. I mean, just the guy just was remarkable. Um, and then, you know, they're a little Salvador Dali esque, you know, kind of, kind of quality to his work. You know, it's a lot of bleeding edges and things, but, but it's cool and it's different. And, and, you know, it's, it's sort of a, you know, again, you know, kind of a controversial course, I guess you'd say, but if your work's any good, you know, that's how that's going to be. Right. I mean, the best work is the stuff that gets argued over. And I go back like I was at Stream Song Black. I mean, the more I play that golf course, the more I think it's the best one out there. 
and a lot of people hate. I mean, I, but it's it's damn good. I mean, there, there's some stuff out there that's different. It's interesting. It's unique. And it gets you thinking, you know, that's what you want, right? I mean, you can get white oh, bread yeah. anywhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the last thing about your writing that I wanted to ask is I think many of us enjoy it f- because you're not afraid to give us your uh, your personal perspective, that you're not afraid to be a little vulnerable at times in your writing. You're not afraid to you know, express yourself truly. And, uh, you talk a lot about, a lot about self-improvement in in many of your, uh, your essays. And, you know, I was, I was, I, I think we see ourselves in your writings, right? That's, that's part, I, I know I certainly do. And everybody's at a different stage in their golf journey. We, we talk about that all the time where you just got to understand people aren't maybe at where you are, but they're going to get the, you know, there or they're, or you're behind them or whatever, but everyone's on, on different stages in their journey. I, I feel like you, you've gotten to a stage where, you you were able to freely express that um for those of us that that aren't that don't really kind of speak our mind about what we like and what we don't like and the game of golf and that self-improvement side uh let's just say we wanted to start writing you know what tips do would you have for them when you start putting your either your thoughts down on paper you're doing journaling or you know you're starting podcasts which some of our members have actually done like what are some things that you would share with them to to get that expression out well, for starters, um, it's not that I'm unafraid to do it. I just somehow have been able to shelve my shame. Uh, but um, it's actually, you know, I, I, I especially when you start, it's pretty terrifying. Um, you know, to really open up and and you know, again, I, I'm I have a pretty addictive personality. You know, I I I can get I can go from not having a drink for three weeks to drinking a bottle of wine a night. You know, I can go from not having a dip for six months to drip, dipping a can around, you know I mean? And writing is, is certainly um, part of that for me. And what I have found is that the most addictive thing in writing is, uh, is that working on myself, going into the thing, you know, trying to explore the most vulnerable thing about my thoughts uh, and my existence and, and, and dumping them out into the world. Um, it actually gets pretty, uh, you know, cathartic and, and addictive after a while. Um, and you get better, you know, when, when you, when you find that you're the way that you improve, the way that I have improved personally you know, as a human is by you know, talking about it, getting it out there. Um, the more you keep these things bottled up, the, they, they become cancerous inside of you. And, um, so writing is very therapeutic for me like that. Um, so I would tell people to, you know, when you, when you kind of scan your life uh, and your life in golf, if you, if you look at those areas uh, that are the most uncomfortable, that's really where the good stuff is. Um, and again, if you, if you start by writing for yourself, you tend to find that there are a lot of people who are in the same place you are. Uh, and the stuff that I think that, that I write that's most compelling is when I'm in that space. Um, you know, when I can, when I can paint, try to paint a vivid picture of, of what my own experience has been like, uh, I, I tend to think people respond to it pretty well. So, you know, my tip for anyone and is, is, um, uh, read a lot, figure out what you like, uh, and then try to do the best version of it for your areas of discomfort, uh, and, um, and put it out in the world and see what happens. You know, I, uh, you know, the good news is, is. I don't know. I looked, uh, I looked earlier. I think, you know, my book was like, you know, number 15,000 on Amazon, you know, today, right over in home. But, uh, yeah, there's millions of books out there. So, you know, if you, if you do something that's not very good, the good news is it gets forgotten pretty quickly. Uh, but if you, if you work at it and you do something that's, you know, interesting, yeah, I think people would be surprised how, how quickly that can spread. The, the internet is the great democratization of ideas, right? Um, you know, I think everybody should write on the internet. Everybody should tell their story. I, I get up and do a lot of, um, sort of teaching, uh, my master's degrees in applied American politics and policy at FSU. And I do a lot of teaching on campus and in particularly talk a lot about, you know, political narratives and, and, and how to do storytelling. Uh, because I, I, I've always said that, you know, um, the most, um, important story that anyone can tell uh, is the story of their own lives. And if, and, and if you're not comfortable doing that yourself, no one else ever will be. So, 
you really have to, I think, in, in today's world, be, be willing to open up and be willing to tell uh, the story of who you are. Because what, what I continue to find is the more that we open up about who we are individually, uh, the more connections you're going to make with people who have had similar experiences. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting, you know, a lot of people who are in maybe, uh, uh, older generations, you know, that has always been something that's sort of been discouraged in general. Um, but you know, our generation, we're, we're the internet generation, you know, I mean, we're sort of the first generation to ever really grow up with these tools, uh, and others will be better at it than us eventually. But, um, I think we all feel like we have something to offer to the world. And, and the more you're, um, the more you can convince yourself of that and be willing to do it. Uh, I think the better off, um, you know, we all, we all will be, I mean, there's nothing better than diving into someone's story and realizing that you have a connection. And in today's world, again, the coolest thing about it is the barrier to then make that actual connection with someone is virtually non-existent. I, mean, I, I get pe people drop me messages I love, it's my favorite thing. I love responding to messages. I love meeting people. You, know, you end up having a lot of these sort of you know, almost internet pen pals uh, uh, that, that, that you've never met. And, and there's actually a story in the book about uh, a trip I took up to Sweetens Cove to meet up with a lot of golf folks um, for a Sugarloaf event. And uh, you, know, you kind of stand there. I remember we were all sort of standing around the parking lot, kind of like a middle school dance because you're trying to sort of put faces with you know names from you know your instagram profile uh and message board and uh but it's cool i mean once you finally you know you get to know people in ways that you just would have never got to know them before and, and you get to know yourself so it's a, it's a good thing it's a real good thing and we're excited to dive into your new book man your first book the nine virtues of golf so congrats again um yeah where can our members find you online speaking of connecting with online pen pals where can everybody find you yeah sure so i'm i'm on uh, i'm on all the hit channels you know uh i'm at j revel on twitter uh i'm at j revel writes uh on instagram uh you can look up my author page on amazon uh, that's the best place to buy the book uh it'll be available in some stores i think later uh once we get through sort of the initial offering period on amazon but um and uh, and i'm on youtube i've got a a, a a YouTube channel. If you like, uh, you know, indie flicks, uh, boy, have I got a place for you to hang out. So, uh, I, I, I have enjoyed trying to get to know that, uh, that effort a little bit more and I've gotten a little bit better at it, but, uh, I do some sort of video essays, you know, do my best, you know, rich learner, uh, uh, impressions, uh, when I can. But, uh, again, I look back on some of those and I go, Oh boy, that wasn't very good, but, but it's a learning process. So, um, yeah, so I'm on YouTube, uh, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, you can hit me up on Facebook, whatever, you know, all those, all those places. Uh, and, uh, feel free to, you know, email me anytime. I'm, uh, jreveltlh at gmail.com. Um, uh, I love talking to people, so it's fun. Awesome. And I, Jay, I've, I've loved talking to you, man. This has been great. Is there any, uh, any final party words you want to share with our, our group today? You know, um, nothing in particular. Uh, if you, if you like the book, uh, I hope you'll, you'll tell your friends about it, you know, share it a little bit. You know, word of mouth is still the most powerful thing in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, I keep getting some pretty good responses and, uh, I am working on my next one already. You know, you, you noted the little, uh, daily golf stories that I do on the Instagram page and I started putting them up on my website at jrebel.com. But I think, uh, you know, probably about this time next year, we'll, we'll probably have all those compiled into something that's a, an interesting uh, reflection on the game. I, I, I'm playing around with some ideas of how that might all come together, but you know, they're fun. I, the, the world's kind of got a short attention span. So uh, I, I always love the, the quote from Mark Twain. Uh, he said, you know, I wrote you a, short, a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a short one. Uh, so I've been trying to get really, really good at writing these very expeditious little, uh, little post, but, um, yeah, you know, hit me up folks. If you're ever coming through Florida, North Florida, this part of the world, uh, I love having people out to the capital city. Uh, I've, I've had all kinds of people come through where, where I always say we're a little bit off the beaten path, but the golf course there is actually pretty incredible and, uh, a really unique little place. So, uh, if you're ever coming through Tallahassee, uh, you know, hit me up. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk some Florida state sports and a little bit of golf and, and have some fun.
I love it. I'm going to take you up on that. Um, and, and thank you, man. Thanks for everything you're yeah. doing. This was really enjoyable. Uh, and good luck with that Zoysia in the backyard. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I got, a little, I got a lawn staring at me that really needs to be mowed. So, uh, <laughs> thanks man. I, I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed connecting with you, getting a little bit better and, uh, uh, love, uh, what you and the guys at new club are doing. Uh, I really do think that is the future of the game. I mean, giving people these opportunities, like-minded people to connect uh, in a more easy fashion uh, with, with the game and the places that make it so special is, is really the key. So um, kudos for doing that. I, 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 we live in a, a really a golden age for being able to make those things happen. And uh, I just love seeing people like yourself be successful at it. Thanks, Jay. We, we appreciate you, man. And uh, nine, virtue of, nine virtues of golf. And we're looking forward to diving in. Yeah, man. Thanks, Take brother. care.